And if you turn in uh, the Bible to Ezra chapter 8, that's page 480 in the Church Bibles, or page 739 if you are in the large print Bible. Ezra uh, chapter 8. I want you to imagine this as a job description. So on the advert it says, Wanted. People to come on a journey, and it's 900 miles walking every day. You have to carry lots of heavy goods of great value, but you can't have any of them. There is no pay, no pension plan, and there is no in-work benefits. It is mainly night work, as it's too hot to walk in the daytime. It is high risk, as the roads that you will walk on are notorious for armed robbers that want to steal the goods that we are transporting. There will be small children on the walk. Upon arrival, there is no going home, and the place where we are going to is pretty run down. Are there any takers for this job? Well, this is the kind of sell that Ezra had to do in order to get people to come with him to Jerusalem. No wonder the phrase, the hand of the Lord, appears over and over again in this passage. For it is certainly not Ezra and his sales ability that would have got people to come on this journey. Without a doubt, it was the hand of the Lord that did it. In Ezra chapter 7, we were introduced to the man Ezra who wrote this book and we saw how he was called by God to go to Jerusalem and re-establish the law of God among the people. And we saw in that chapter, as we will see in this, that the key phrase in this chapter, indeed throughout this whole book, is the hand of the Lord was upon us. And that was behind everything that went on. As before in this book, we have seen that God is on the move through the hearts of pagan kings as well as his own people. This time, he is on the move to make his people holy. The last part of Ezra is about re-establishing God's law in God's place so that God's people are a holy people. The first part was the return of the people. The second part was the rebuilding of the temple and establishing the worship in the temple. And this last part is re-establishing the law so God's people are holy. And Ezra 7 showed the hands of God in the circumstances that led to him going back to re-establish the law. Working through King Artaxerxes, this pagan king, and all the ways that God allowed uh, the people to have this abundant provision of expenses and all that they needed to go back to the land to do the job. But in Ezra chapter 8, we see the journey back to Jerusalem. And today we're going to see the lessons from the journey. And a journey is a good description of the Christian life. And in this chapter, as we look at how God brings his people to Jerusalem, we're going to see a picture 
of how God brings us into his kingdom and to the eternal rest of heaven. And this parallel is shown in three parts. First of all, we're going to see the call to go. Second, we're going to see the hazardous journey. And finally, we're going to see the blessed arrival. So let's see how this is played out in Ezra 8. I'm going to read the whole of this chapter, including the list of family heads returning with Ezra at the beginning. Ezra chapter 8. These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. Of the descendants of Phineas, Gershom. Of the descendants of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the descendants of David, Hattush, of the descendants of Shechaniah, of the descendants of Parosh, Zechariah, and with him were registered 150 men. Of the descendants of Pehath Moab, Elihonai, son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men. Of the descendants of Zatu, Shechaniah, son of Jehazael, and with him 300 men. Of the descendants of Aden, Ebed, son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the descendants of Elam, Jeshaiah, son of Athaliah, and with him seventy men. Of the descendants of Shephatiah, Zebediah, son of Michael, and with him eighty men. Of the descendants of Joab, Obadiah, son of Jehiel, and with him two hundred and eighteen men. Of the descendants of Bani, Shelemith, son of Josephiah, and with him a hundred and sixty men. Of the descendants of Bebai, Zechariah, son of Bebai, and with him, twenty-eight men. Of the descendants of Asgad, Johanan, son of Hakatan, and with him, a hundred and ten men. Of the descendants of Adonikim, the last ones, whose names were Eliphalet, Jewel, and Shemaiah, and with them, sixty men. Of the descendants of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them, seventy men. I assembled them at the canal that flows towards Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So I summoned Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, El-Nathan, Jarib, El-Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders, and Jorib and El-Nathan, who were men of learning. And I ordered them to go to Ido, the leader at Kasifiah, I told them what to say to Ido and his fellow Levites, the temple servants in Kasaphia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, eighteen in all, and Hashabiah together with Josiah from the descendants of Merai, and his brothers and nephews, twenty in all. They also bought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. There, by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks on him but his anger, great anger, is against all who forsake him. 
So we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, namely Sherebiah, Hashabiah and ten of their brothers, and I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisers, his officials and all Israel present there, present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 100 derricks, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. I said to them, you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. On the fourth day in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles into the hands of Miramoth, son of Uriah the priest. Eleazar, son of Phinehas, was with him, and so were the Levites, Jozabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Binari. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at that time. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven male lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. This is God's word. And in verses uh, 1 to 14, at the beginning, we have yet another in Ezra list of names. And we're not going to turn there, but if you did go back to chapter 2, you'll see actually the list of names here is very similar. The family heads are almost exactly the same. What this shows us is that when, Ezra initially, when the call initially went out, not by Ezra, but by Zerubbabel, and uh, Sheshbazar for the people to go to Jerusalem in the first place, the initial call was mixed. Not everyone who could have gone did go to Jerusalem. And the book of Ezra is sometimes called the second exodus. And here we see the people of God again in another generation, because remember it's 60 years later than the end of chapter 6, going again to Jerusalem. There is an exodus experience for this generation, as there is for our generation too, when God calls us into his kingdom. And like in chapter 2, this list of names reminds us that we also are on a list. Nobody knows who a lot of these people are on this list. Some names are significant. Phineas and David, for example, had been made promises by God that they would always have descendants. For Phineas, it was descendants of priests, and for David, descendants of kings, both of which were fulfilled in Jesus. But most of these names, nobody knows. But God does. All of us 
are known by God. Our names are written as God's people in God's book of life. And as we go on an exodus from slavery and sin to glory in heaven, we go known and loved and significant to our God. Think about that for a moment. The God of the whole universe knows your name. And your name is on his list if you are his child. And these people were called by God to go. They were called to go to Jerusalem with Ezra. And they all met, as we would say in the black country in verse 15, at the cut. They met at the canal. And Ezra assembled them and they camped there three days so he could check out the people. But when they were checked out, he realised that there were no Levites. In chapter 2, there were 733 Levites that went back. That was 1.5% of the whole population. It was not a group that was keen to go back to Jerusalem. And when we looked at chapter 2, we asked the question, why was that? And the reason was, was because the Levites were entrusted with the menial tasks in the temple. They were not the upfront people that everybody saw and everybody could applaud. The Levites were the ones that were in the background. But they were needed by Ezra for two jobs. First of all, they were needed to help with the teaching because they were ones that knew the law as Levites. But also, in the book of the law, in the books of Moses, the Levites had the job of carrying the temple articles. And so he needed them, in order to fulfil the law, to take these articles back to Jerusalem. But the problem was, there was nobody that wanted to do it. The Levites were the equivalent, I guess, in the church, of those who set up and those who tidy up, those who teach Sunday school. Any job that you don't see at the front, these guys did that job. And they were vital because Ezra wanted to re-establish the law of Moses. If he had no one to teach the law, if he had no one to carry the articles so he wasn't fulfilling the law, it would undermine the whole purpose of what Ezra was going back to do. And so in verse 16, to rectify this problem, Ezra sent a group of men of high standing, leaders and teachers, many of which seemed to have the name El Nathan. That obviously was the top name at the time. They were all different people, but it was obviously a popular name. And they went to a place called Cassiphia, where a man in charge was there called Ido. And he had some Levites who could come. Now, no commentator really knows where or what Cassiphia was, but most say that it was some kind of Jewish settlement or school, and obviously it was a place where there was lots of Levites. I tend to see it as some kind uh, of example where today some church leaders might go to a Bible college in order to look for workers in the church. A similar kind of thing, I think, was going on here in Ezra. And by God's grace, in verse 18, they received 38 Levites. Not loads, but some. At the same time, they only had a few days in order to agree to leave everything behind and come on this long journey and do all these menial tasks and not come home. Because we know that it took 11 days before they set off. So they had a little under two weeks 
to decide whether they were going to leave and go on this long journey. They also managed to get 220 temple servants, a group that David established to come along too. Ezra registered them and then they were ready to go. They left the cut and went to the, the land of, uh, of Jeru- to Jerusalem. Well, what can we make of all of this? How on earth is this list of names and meeting at the canal relevant to us? Well, it's relevant to us because we too, like these people, have been called into God's kingdom. And he has called us by name. And he has called us, like the Levites, to serve him. At times of discouragement or times of doubt in our Christian lives, we need to remember who we are in Christ. That God has called us. That God knows us. That's good to know, isn't it? Sometimes when we're struggling with with doubts that, that, that the God of the universe knows our name, he himself has called us on this journey. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 reminds us, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. What a wonderful truth that we can remember in those times of discouragement or doubt, that we are called by God out of darkness into his glorious light. We are his special possession. But also, we need to remember that we are called to serve. All of these people were going back with a purpose to serve the Lord, but I think the Levites show us that there are times when it is difficult to find people to serve. And there are times when, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't really want to serve, especially when we don't get the plaudits and people don't see what we're doing. But Ezra did manage to cajole them into service. Now, I'm not going to try and do that here this evening, but I have to ask the question, what about you? What can you do? And by the way, background roles in the church are vital If they don't happen, the church just does not function in the way that it should. In fact, most of the work that goes on in our church is not seen. Most of the work that goes on in our church is done in the background. Nobody sees, apart from the children, the work that our Sunday school teachers put in week after week after week. Nobody sees the people that put rotors together. Nobody sees the work of deacons. Nobody sees... Uh, people cleaning and tidying because so often it's done in the background where no one sees. Maybe this is a point to remind us again. There is uh, vacancies on our communion rotor to set up the communion. It's in the background. But if it's not done, we can't have the Lord's table. Everybody sees uh, Tim or I leading the Lord's table. But nobody really sees what goes on in the background in order to set that up. And it's important, isn't it? And finally, as we uh, look at these verses, we see Ezra doing an important job. He registered them and he checked them in verse 15. And it's right that we are careful about who we do admit into church membership. It is right that we check that there is a valid testimony, that the beliefs are in line with our biblical convictions and that their lives show genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. 
That is why uh, we have testimonies for having people uh, come to be baptised and join the church in uh, just, a, uh, just over a month's time. It's important, isn't it, that we understand that they are Christians, they have a testimony that God has worked in their life, that they want to live for Jesus. It's an important role uh, that we have as a church to make sure that happens. And we see Ezra doing that same thing here in Ezra chapter 8. But in addition to all of this, I need to ask you another really important question. Have you even begun on a journey with Christ? God calls us to follow him. And we can do so because Jesus Christ has died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Our sins are what separate us from God, but he has died to pay that debt. And he calls us to believe that Jesus has died and risen from the dead and to ask him for forgiveness of sin and follow him on this journey. Would you accept the call to follow Christ? Would you accept that call? Because here we see a people who are called to go. So first of all we see the call, but secondly, as they begin the journey, we see that it is a hazardous journey. Now this morning, uh, it was uh, great that we could focus on the the joy of being a Christian and that it is a, a blessing to be part of God's people. And we shouldn't be down in the doldrums and we shouldn't be grim. But at the same time, in this passage, we see another side, and that is that we mustn't also believe that we have an easy life as Christians. Jesus says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So whilst it is true that following Jesus is a great joy, a great privilege, there's no greater life to be had. Jesus says, he comes that we would have life and have it to the full. He comes and says that we'll have true joy as we follow him. But it's not an easy life. We know that it's a hazardous journey. And for Ezra, the journey was hazardous. It was a 900 mile trip in the summer. This meant that they would have to travel at night. And they had all of these uh, expensive goods. They were carrying gold, silver and other precious things worth millions of pounds that they had to travel with through the night on this journey of 900 miles. The roads they were travelling on were notorious for bandits and robbers that wanted to take all of the stuff that they had. And so in verse 21, look at what Ezra did. He said, There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. Ezra faced a crisis and the first place Ezra went was to God. And the first place to go in a crisis is prayer, isn't it? It is to go to God. But what is our instinct? What's your instinct? When you face crisis moments, is it an internet search for a solution? Is it a glossy magazine to find out what all the celebrities do? Is it your own intellect? Is it to go straight to see how much money you've got in the bank so you can pay your way out? 
But no, the Bible teaches us, and here we see it in practice, the spiritual preparation for this crisis was fasting and prayer. Let me commend to you fasting and prayer as the first place to go in a crisis. In February, we looked at fasting, so we're not going to talk about it an awful lot tonight, but you can uh, request to listen to those talks uh, again. But the purpose of fasting is to focus our minds on the Lord and to petition him with our whole bodies as well, as expressing our desire for him more than food. It humbles us before God, as Ezra describes it here. Here he says he fasts so that we might humble ourselves before God. And in fasting and prayer, they asked God for protection on the journey. Well, why did Ezra do this? Because the question that comes up from verse 22 is that why didn't he ask for an escort from the king? He was entitled to having soldiers and horsemen from the king. But verse 22 tells us that he was ashamed to ask for it. And the reason was this. Ezra, we know from the previous chapter, asked the king to go to Jerusalem. And when he was with the king, verse 22 tells us he was uh, talking up how great God is. He was expressing to the king how great the God of Israel is. And he says, well, how could I say our God is great, our God protects his people, and then say, but I need an escort from the king? He was ashamed to ask because he had told the king how great God is. Interestingly, in the next book of the Bible, the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah goes to the same king and asks a very similar question. I want to go back to Jerusalem, but for Nehemiah it was to rebuild the walls. And Nehemiah accepts a military escort. So was Nehemiah then less spiritual than Ezra? No. God does not call each of us to face the situation in the same way. Sometimes it is right to take risks, like Ezra did. And sometimes it is right to be prudent, like Nehemiah was. But it's all about which gives God the glory at the time. The way that Ezra presented his case to the king meant that he could not accept a military escort. But Nehemiah was offered that and he saw that as a provision for God and he went. Both are the right response at the right time in their particular situation. And for Ezra, it was to forego that military escort. And Kevin DeYoung says that if you are to forego the use of ordinary means, then you must petition God with extraordinary prayer. And that is exactly what we see Ezra doing here. Regardless, though, of whether we end up with the ordinary or the extraordinary, the first place both Ezra and Nehemiah, if you read Nehemiah, go to is God in prayer. And these verses in Ezra radiate with faith in God and his power to overcome enemies. And in verse 23, it says, So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Now, I don't know whether that was God giving them a special word that told them they could go, or whether he's writing in hindsight, but we'll see that this was true. God answered prayer. We will see that they did arrive safely. All through uh, this book, we have seen God's hand at work, and here is no different. As they prayed, God worked. 
So the journey begins with dependence on God, but then also we see good stewardship. Again, the hand of God and the hand of Ezra, which we saw in chapter 7. Good stewardship in Ezra, uh, in, this, in verses 24 to 30. In verse 24, we see Ezra beginning this work of weighing out the gold and the silver and the articles that he had been given. He was careful to weigh everything out. He knew what he had with him. And he knew what he had given each person on the journey. So that the people could be held accountable for what they had. And it came to an enormous sum. An an enormous sum of, 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 of value. Millions and millions of pounds. But notice two things he did in verses 28 and 29. Verse 28, I said to them, you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. First of all, Ezra recognised that both the people and the possessions as holy and thus consecrated to the Lord. This meant that the possessions were treated as special and they were seen as God's possessions, not Israel's. The king had given loads of possessions to Israel, but Ezra was wanting the people to know, your possessions are God's. They are God's, not yours. And the second thing he did in verse 29 was was to tell the people to guard them carefully. This was from bandits on the way, but also it was from potential theft from the people that were going to Jerusalem themselves. You can imagine there was a a group of people and they had all these possessions. The temptation must have been there sometimes to say, well, there's so much here, no one's going to notice if I just pocket a few coins. Or if I just put this goblet in my bag, no one will know. But actually Ezra would, because he had counted it out meticulously at the beginning. But there was a healthy cynicism here where he made it difficult for the people to sin. And the people in verse 30 got the gold and the silver and they set out on their journey. Good stewardship. And there is a definite application there for us, isn't there, as God's people? As God calls us to be stewards of what he has given us, whether it's that be material resources, whether that be our time, whether that be our abilities and giftings that he's given us, all of which we are stewards of. Ezra 8 gives us three quick lessons on stewardship. First of all, we need to know what we have got. We need to know what we've got. Just as Ezra counted through here, take time to think through the resources you have. Consider the time you have and the abilities you've got. And then spend time in prayer considering how you are currently using them and how you can use them for the glory of God. Secondly, consecrate all all of these things to the Lord. Now in one sense that is a mindset, isn't it? All that we have is from the Lord. And so with this mindset we should be careful to use what we have for God's glory. And then thirdly, protect what you have from being destroyed. Ezra was concerned about money being taken by robbers because he wanted it to be used for God. He was also concerned that the people were not tempted to steal anything by having accountability in place. And sin can destroy what we do for God. 
And so it's good that we also have accountability in place with what God has given us so that we can make sure that others are helping us use it for his glory. So, for example, with our finances, if you're married, husbands and wives can hold each other accountable for how they're using money. Rather than what happens in many marriages these days, having secret bank accounts from one another. With our use of our time, it's good to have internet accountability software that helps us not fall into sin. We can talk to each other and ask challenging questions of one another about how we're living so that we can keep each other accountable for how we're using what God has given us. But whatever we do, we must be careful to wisely use what God has given us to steward. This journey that they took was 900 miles long. It was again in difficult terrain in the heat of summer. But the journey itself is described in just one verse. Look at verse 31. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. There was no fanfare, there was no showing off, there was just an acknowledgement that the hand of our God was on us and he protected us. And the final lesson from the hazardous journey was that on this journey, the people had God's protection. Despite all this wealth travelling 900 miles from the Ahava Canal to Jerusalem, God protected them the whole way. We will look at the arrival in a moment, but just pause to consider that yes, we are called to walk the narrow way, but we're not called to walk alone. How often in the Bible do we read words of encouragement from the Lord about him being with us, protecting us? Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Isaiah 43 and verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And as Jesus gives the great commission, he said, And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. God protects us as we go. And perhaps some of you are experiencing the hazards of the journey right now. Be assured. God is with you, always. Even if you don't feel it at the time, he will be with you and will continue to be with you until we reach the blessed arrival. After a long journey of some 900 miles, we read in verse 32, so we arrived in Jerusalem and we rested three days. I would need more than three days rest, I think, if I went 900 miles. I've walked a lot less than that recently and I've needed more than three days to get feeling back in my toes. But I know the joy after a long walk of taking your boots off, of sitting in a comfortable chair, having a foot bath, it is bliss. And the first thing they did when they arrived was rest for three days. God had been proven faithful in answering prayer. He had led the people all the way to Jerusalem so that they could rest when they arrived. And on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the sacred articles were weighed out. Everything, verse 34 tells us, was accounted for. 
Ezra and the people that went with him were proved to be good stewards of what the faithful God who had protected them had given them. And after all had been accounted for, the people worshipped. They offered burnt offerings in dedication to God for all Israel. And then, among other sacrifices, twelve male goats were offered as a sin offering for atonement, again, for all Israel. The number twelve is seen all through this passage, actually. The, the number of families at the beginning, there's twelve. Uh, and, and here again at the end we see twelve and numbers divisible by twelve. Twelve is a number that they, they, the Jews here like to use to symbolise all of God's people. And so all of God's people at the end of the journey were there worshipping God and making atonement for all of them. And even in verse 36 it says that the, the royal satraps and the governors of the trans-Euphrates, they were those uh, foreigners who were in charge of the land they, they were given the king's orders and then they assisted the people in worship themselves. It was a blessed arrival after a long, hazardous journey. And for us, as we walk as God's people today, God never promises us an easy journey, but he does promise us a blessed arrival. For us, God will also be proved faithful in getting us the glory as we read Psalm 84, we read about these pilgrims on a journey. And in verse 7 of that psalm, it says, They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Each appears before God. Each one of God's people arrive in Zion and can worship. God will not let any of us go. He will get us to glory. And when we get there, God tells us he will hold us to account for what he has given us. There will be a judgment for Christians, not for sin, because Christ has paid that penalty. But we also will be judged on how we have stewarded what God has given us. When Ezra arrived, everything was accounted for. They had been proved good stewards. And for us, as we think about our future, about how we are using what God has given us, we also must be aware that we will give an account. And finally, just like in, uh, in this story here in Ezra chapter 8, when they arrive, there will be worship. When we arrive in heaven, we will worship. We won't be making sacrifices of animals like they did here, but we will worship the Lamb who has been slain. We will look upon the one that has been sacrificed as our atoning sacrifice. And we will worship him forever. Not just for three days, but forever and ever and ever. And like in Ezra's day, it won't just be Jews in worship. In fact, it won't just be people like in verse 36 that were from the trans-Euphrates. But the Bible promises us all people groups will gather together and worship. And the wonderful thing is that if you and I are called to go... We will reach our destination and we are also invited to worship Jesus for all eternity. And as the journey can be really hard, we must keep focusing on the end goal of glory. Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 8 verse 18 writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. A couple of months ago when we were in uh, San Francisco, uh, I went on an early morning run 
because I wanted to go across the Golden Gate Bridge. And I went up from what's called Baker Beach, uh, up these hills, which we don't have around here all that much when I go running. So when I got up the hill, I was a bit tired, and I crossed over the bridge, and I came to the viewing points, and I had a lovely view of San Francisco, and then I knew I had to run back to the car. So I was running along, and I was tired. But all of a sudden, I stopped, because I have, halfway across the bridge, I looked over the bay, and the sun was rising. Now, I love bridges. The Golden Gate Bridge is one of my most favourite bridges. As I was running across it, I was admiring the architecture and how the bridge withstands earthquakes and all these really things that I find amazing. But when the sun rose, the bridge and everybody on it and everything on it faded in the background. Because over the bay, the sun was rising and it was the most beautiful sight you can imagine. The sunrise is far more beautiful and spectacular than any bridge. And when we are in glory, we will see Jesus. And all of the things of earth, even the things that are really good, won't compare to the wonder and the glory of seeing Jesus. It will be marvellous. I don't know where you are on, on this journey at the moment. Whether it is the call to go, the hazardous journey, or even almost at the arrival. One phrase rings again and again in this chapter and the one preceding it. The hand of the Lord. His providence which is evident over every stage of the journey. His providence which is his complete control over all events to fulfil his good purposes is all through Ezra. But it's also written on the tapestry of our lives. And this God will carry us all the way to that glorious end, that blessed arrival. A number of us uh, have been doing some walks lately and I always love to take a map with me. I love maps for lots of reasons, uh, some of which probably are not very interesting to most of you, but one reason I do like taking a map on a walk is because uh, it helps me to know where I am going. People ask me, which way next, Steve? And I can look on the map and I can say which direction to go. And I can tell them. For our lives, God holds the map. God has planned the route. He knows which way to go and he walks with us as we go. But unlike me, he never gets lost. He will never spend time trying to figure out where on earth am I? Because he is the supreme navigator and we can trust God always to get us to that final destination of glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can trust you always. We thank you, our Father, that you do not leave us to walk on our own, but through this hazardous journey, you take us all the way to glory. Lord, there are some here this evening, no doubt, that are feeling those hazards. Would they trust you? May we hope in that glorious future that you have promised us. May we know in our hearts that we will see Jesus. Help us to be good stewards of what you have given us. Help us not to waste our time as we walk the narrow way.
And help us to be joyful.